Welcome to the Invisible Path number five. How are you? Patrick, good. How are you? Really good. Really good. Um, I'm going to jump right in. We have one question this week, but I actually think it's a good one. So um, we may spend a little bit of time on this. Okay. So Patrick, Joel, I'm starting to better understand the concept of this podcast, and I am really enjoying it. I've been thinking though, with all of these billion dollar companies researching human behavior, how is it possible we can stay ahead of them? Which I think is a really good question. Yeah. Um, I guess it depends on what, what is meant by stay ahead. Um, it's probably hard to, it depends. So I think one, there's different ways to look at this. One way is you can, if you want to stay ahead, sometimes if you can't beat them, you join them. So what I mean by that is you can use all of these tools and technologies to reach out to your tribe. Um, I, I can't understand AI. I can't understand a lot of coding, programming, all that stuff, but other people do. And they've made this deadly simple for you to, um, actually not deadly simple. It's still kind of complex, but it's not more complex than you can figure out if you watch a few YouTube videos and tutorials on how to like get in there and target people in your tribe that you want to reach out to. Um, at the same time, though, uh, do you want to get ahead? How do you get ahead of them? I mean, this is like such a massive behemoth. You can sort of see some of the trends happening here. Um, the complexity is building so much that uh, sometimes when things get over complex, they have to take a pause and a step back. You look at like, shipbuilding uh, way back when, the height and the, the peak of that complexity was the Titanic. Mm -hmm. It truly was. And then we had to take a step back after that. And so sometimes figuring out how to get out of the way and maybe uh, simplify a bit. Um, like the more and more I think about living here in the desert, the high desert Southwest, the more I am freaked out because I can't grow a darn thing here. I have access to good water but there's a lot of there's a lot of things uh that you need to sustain your life that are real simple that are harder to get here so so in some ways i think about how to get ahead it's more like how to prepare for what's coming and um it's hard to know what's coming but i think there are a lot of risks out there and it's good even like it, it's good to hope for the best and prepare for the worst and uh who knows the worst might be that You've got to take care of meeting your own needs and your community's direct needs uh, a little bit more in some sort of period of time. Uh, if there will be a bounce back from that, but certainly I, I see some potential contraction uh, where things have to get more localized for you. And so sometimes it's not getting ahead, it's getting out of the way. But getting ahead, one last thing on this, on this rant would be... Um, niche it down to what you're interested in. Like it's, it's really, unless you're <clears throat> crazy ambitious and you want to be a, a Jeff Bezos or something and work ungodly amounts of hours, then you wouldn't ask this question. You'd already be, already be doing it. Right. But um, one way to get ahead is to follow your interests, follow your, take a look at your skills and your capabilities right now and what it is that you'd, you could build what you'd like to build or what you'd like to do and what you could do and do that in the smallest scale for the smallest audience possible, because that 
that is the tip of the spear. That is like what is most most effective in a way, um, or, or at least it's what most of us can do. Like I, I just find my, myself personally, it's like, well, I know I can't build some giant thing, and I don't want to. Like I want to be, uh, I don't know about lazy, but maybe more focused on uh, things more central to my family and my community. So start small, maybe and use the tools while you can and uh, hopefully and don't let them use you <laughs> <laughs> so for that last point then not letting them you do you have do you have any um do you have any tips concepts or ideas on how you can sure you're not being used depends on it depends on your temperament i think and mm -hmm. your psychological makeup um so when i said that I, I think really i was thinking about you know social media in particular i'm not sure what you were thinking about patrick but some people to me right away right some people like the the people that tend to have a um I don't, like i hate to use this label but the people that tend to be more on the uh well let's just say they're they're self-empowered you could say the people that are like uh, really, uh, they tend towards more of like the narcissistic side of the scale of personality. I don't mean that they're like terrible, irredeemable narcissists, but the people that tend to be like more full of themselves, more um, completely centered in themselves and what they're <clears throat> what they're about, and that have the ability and the uh, the temperament to sell things um, and to just constantly nonstop talk about themselves. They do really well on social media. Just pay attention out there. You will see that generally, I think the people that, that skew that way, skew towards um, the narcissistic side of the scale, they rise to the top because they can just focus on that all the time. Whereas other people, or maybe a better way to look at it is extroverted. Um, you, you, could, you could say either. There's got to be a combination of both of those. Um, or maybe people that, another category, there would be people who have a, a real hole to fill I think we're going to get into this in the, the, the theme of this, this episode, but people that have a real need to have an audience that, that have a need psychologically to like, uh, to, to go for getting that external validation. Those people do really well. Um, that's not to say that this, that the social media still isn't using that because people that are maybe putting out a really, you know, focused image and, and they're, killing it on social media or whatever some of those people are still quite miserable in their uh personal lives and they are just good at omitting all of that and not really having a whole lot of transparency around that but generally i would say pay attention if you are like people talk about how sitting is the new smoking i think that is such a crock of shit like for sure don't sit a lot but um I'm sitting right now. You're sitting right now. Look at the hypocrisy. Um, <laughs> but but um, social media is the new smoking. 100% social media is the new smoking, and it has been for a long time. And so paying attention to how you feel uh, when you're on there and when you get off of there is pretty, is pretty important. And if you, like I... I've never gotten hooked on it for a long time. And now I just find it to be something that I'm repelled from. And, and so that could be a problem though, too, if you're trying to build something, um, how do you, how do you navigate that? How do you use it without it using you? 
I yeah. think it's, uh, I think it's awareness and figuring out, figuring out if it makes you feel uh, better or not. Like for me, it's just like, uh, doesn't make me feel great. And I'm yeah. trying to teach that awareness to my my kids as well. And uh, I think, yeah, I'd mentioned that on an earlier one, like my younger one, he quit TikTok and it was just like high five. Yeah. That's epic. And he's still, still off of that. And yeah. I think a lot of that comes down to like us having conversations about that awareness of the time suck of it. The fact that you're giving over your kind of authority and your center to other people by paying, by paying attention too much, maybe to what they're doing and looking at that hyper filtered ideal that's put out there. Um, and an image, you know, it's always refreshing when you find someone who's willing to pull back the curtain a little bit and show some honesty. Right. So yeah, yeah there's the rant. Any thoughts? I have a lot of thoughts on that. So, um, I want to roll it back to this. I want to, I want to touch on this, uh, smoking concept because, um, when we think of the negative impact uh, that smoking has on our health, like the first thing that pops into my mind is cancer and that experience that, that, that canceric experience is individualized. And when you compared that to social media, I, I immediately started to wonder if the, like the, the realization of the cancer is societal right? There's an, there's an impact on the individual being for sure. But because the web of connection is so vast and expansive, I wonder if the way that the cancer of social media manifests is actually in the, in the shifting of society and in the pushing of the direction of society more towards whatever that cancer manifests as. And I, I think I'm not necessarily sure it matters how it manifests, but I do, I wonder if the impact that is felt on, uh, from social media is more expressed or more um, tangible in, in a societal lens with, in comparison to an individual lens. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, yeah, I think it does. Um, it, to take it to the individual, uh, which you just mentioned, I mean, I, I think of it also before the cancer comes into play, it's addiction yeah. and, and we're, we're a highly addiction driven species, I would say, and society. Um, but when I think, when I think about that, it's like the addiction is to that little dopamine hit and it's yeah. trying to fill a void. And, yeah. uh, sometimes, you know, getting to the theme of, of this episode, which is going to be around leaders, experts, gurus, and holy men, sometimes what you're trying to fill and what you're never going to be able to fill on social media is a God-sized hole yeah. inside of you. And yeah. you're never going to fill that damn thing, but you're going to try uh, with those little incremental dopamine hits on the gram. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. So that, that's the other point that I had. And it's, it's a little bit murky. Um, I, you, you said something along the lines of trying to fill that hole before, and now you've kind of, you've kind of used this God sized hole from social media, which I think is a really good analogy. I, when you brought it up the first time, my immediate thought was the hole that people, the, the tool that people are using to try to fill the hole in their lives is most often possessions because they're, they're the easiest thing. 
But then, and, and my answer to that is the resources you're spending on uh, filling the hole with possession. If you took that that same amount of energetic experience and you applied it towards filling that hole with community, you, you'd have better success. Then you threw this curveball at me and mentioned the fact that social media is also a tool that we're using to fill that hole. And I think that one of the fascinating things about social media is it is a faux community, right? You can create real connections out of social media. You and I met on Instagram um, and we've like built a, a really fun connection and it's valuable and it's nourishing for me. And I appreciate the heck out of it. But the majority of interactions that happen on social media don't ever extend beyond the gram right? That, that is essentially the encapsulation of, an, of the entire experience. And there, there is a marketable amount of life that happens outside of that little tiny square on your phone screen. So I think there's also, there's a requirement to, you have to really separate out social media and life. Because they, uh, although they are billed to you as being the same thing, they are distinctly not the same thing. They are very much the opposite of the same thing. Yeah, because if life was social media only, I I know, but we would just be we'd just be frolicking through beautiful flower fields. We would never have to eat, and if we did eat, it would be the most amazing meal that's ever been prepared in the history of all time. And it's just that that is not the real experience. Sometimes you're gonna pop open a box of Kraft macaroni and cheese, and you're gonna cook that up because in seven minutes you can have a meal, and it's gonna cost you ninety nine cents. Man, that always gets me too. Like, man, my kids want some mac and cheese, and like, there's always a little leftover in the pot, and then I eat it. It's <laughs> so damn good. Anyways, you know the the gram when you said I said it, and then you said it, and when you said it, it made me think of uh, Brave New World, which is a book by Aldous Huxley, and this is like a great kind of companion or congruent book with uh, George Orwell's 1984, yeah. but in Brave New World, they have uh, they have a drug. This, this world is like a dystopian world, and it's all about controlling the population through um, distraction and through pleasure. And they have this uh, great line where they say uh, the drug there is is called soma, and this is given to everyone. and And uh, the the line there is better to have a gram than give a damn, or something like that. And so this seems to be like a great little cosmic giggle where <laughs> it is better to just have the distraction of hopping onto Instagram and looking at the funny memes and all the, the dopamine delights than to just give a damn about um, whatever is burning down <laughs> around you in the real world. Yeah. Um, so that's fascinating. And, and then you, you do, I mean, we have a need to... Uh, we want an ideal, right? Like it's natural to look towards an ideal, to look towards people that seem to embody an ideal. And I mean, that's a positive thing. That's like totally in line with, with evolutionary biology. You look to the, the best hunter in the tribe and maybe they lived a couple generations ago. And so now they are, uh, you know, glorified through some kind of stories, um, of the past and you want to 
uh, you want to align yourself with that ideal and, um, and maybe it's interesting. Like we don't really have a whole lot of God is sort of dead. Religion is sort of on the, on the outs. And so, but that being said, we're still looking to, um, to deify something, to follow something, to worship something. And so that's where you get these teachers, leaders, gurus, holy men, uh, some better than others. And a lot of them popping up on your phone. Yeah. So Um, let's spin that right in. I'll, I'll throw one last thing out. And that is, how is it possible to stay ahead of billion dollar companies? adaptability, Mm. right? We Mm. are the ultimate cockroach and like that doesn't feel great, but humans are the most adaptable thing that has existed on this planet thus far. Um, and I, I, I really believe that. And that doesn't mean humans are going to go on forever. There will eventually become a time when the environment will change to the point where humans cannot adapt. But every environment that exists, humans have been able to adapt to at this point. And that, that is a, a remarkable quality that is inherent in every single human being on this planet. So just remember, you have the ability to adapt and no amount of money has ever been able to prevent that from happening yet. Um, okay. So let's, let's roll right into this topic and, um, I'm going to start out and just ask you, are gurus good or bad? Man. So we, you know, I mentioned before, like we need an ideal, right. And, um, I think that uh, this whole rant will probably be filled with contradictions. And so obviously are they good or bad? I would say it depends. I would say that there's so much at play there. There's, I think there's a lot of, first of all, you're, you're giving away, you're giving away some of your inner authority to a group or to a person or to some ideology. And maybe, maybe in a sense, when you are ripe for that, ready for that, vulnerable to that, however you want to put it, maybe you actually need that. Maybe you need to humble yourself to the fact that you're sensing that there is something missing and you're in search of it. And so you're, you're looking at these, at these uh, other people out there that have gone further down the path, or at least they say they have, or you believe they have than than you have in some particular, you know, facet of, of reality, spirituality, whatever. And so maybe you need them in that moment. It's, it's an interesting thing. Like I, I think that the topic of this, it may, it may be that like this, the cynical side of me would want to just completely rail against the guru uh, and only point out their faults. But it, it's a fascinating kind of um, dance between a person who, who, ha- who has claimed some kind of authority and then a person who feels like they do have a God-sized hole that need, they need to fill in some way. And they're looking for help to do that. Uh, what are your thoughts on on the guru? You know, I think it I, I, like it's a very it's a very complex idea. Um, I think there is a there's there's an immediate there's an when whenever someone te- it, like if someone introduced if someone came up to me and said, "Hey, Patrick, you know, I'm a guru," I would be immediately turned off. 
In the same way, if someone walked up to me and said, yeah. I'm enlightened, I would be immediately turned off. There, the, a, a BS meter would go off in my head at, at full 100% level. And I have, I have lived that full experience where anyone who's telling me that they are better than me in any way, for whatever reason, there's, there's an alarm bell that goes off and I start to question things really intently. There's also this, there's also this like seemingly very, very, very close to 100% truism, which is absolute power corrupts absolutely. And in the like historical lineage of gurus, right? The, the Sikh and the Hindu guru system, which is where I, I kind of draw the lineage back to. Within those, within those teachings, part of, part of the philosophy written in and, and expressed and shared is you do not question the guru and you give up all of your possessions, not give up all of your possessions, just walk away from them. You give them to the guru. And that to me is a very absolute power, right? If you're in a position where you cannot be questioned, you, you are in a position of absolute power. I think there are very few human beings who can be trusted with that amount of power. And I used to think it was zero. And now I think it might be one. <laughs> well, you know, it's a great, it's a great, uh, kind of sales and marketing ploy because 99% of people are going to say, no, I, I don't want that product. Yep. But the one person who feels so lost and so yep. incomplete that walks into that and says, yeah, I'll take that deal. You know, you've got them at that point. Like that's yep. a, that's a great customer for you. If yep. you want to look at that very cynically, I mean, the, the psychology involved in that, that relationship between like a, a spiritual superior and their inferior, their followers, I think is just fascinating. I mean, you have to, you have to believe in some kind of extraordinary abilities in this person. And you have to believe that they only lie external to you, that you don't have the inner authority, that uh, you don't have those capabilities. um, And you'll never be able to have those experiences either. And, and so that's a fascinating thing. Um, and maybe you do need, maybe you do need some help, but it's, it's interesting to, to just observe yourself, observe your own psychology and say, well, am I the kind of person who is easily duped and, and suckered into one of these, these, yeah. uh, these types of situations. And just to get to the power part of it, I mean, man, like I think about how could you like spiritual leaders in the modern age, a lot of the times that kind of morphs into a, a cult of yep. some kind. And that's only human nature. Like I yep. think about if I had a bunch of adoring followers, that that could be that could be terribly corrupting for sure. For me. Like I don't actually think that, I mean, maybe I would be a good person, but probably not. I think I would fall prey to the same traps as everybody else, because (laughs) why wouldn't you what like that would be so seductive to have that level of power, that level of control. And what invariably happens, it's typically a male guru and they just sweep up all of the women and just, uh, they just try to push away all of the men. And it's just, so it, it, it gets back to this just very kind of basic primitive type of move and there's nothing really enlightened about it. Yeah. Um, it's just, can you, 
yeah, can you can you dupe some people into this? And it goes on for a while and then and then it blows up. One of the most fascinating things that I that I ever heard about this this guru-esque relationship uh came from Charles Mann. And you you mentioned the point where most most people end up sweeping all the males away. One of the things that he did that I found brilliant and terrifying because my brain is not capable of something like this is he got to the point he got a few women to follow him and then he he found a male with the appropriate physical characteristics that he brought into his clan to help him recruit other females so he went out and like found this guy who he duped into the, the plan. And then that guy became a resource gatherer for him. And oh. I have always found that level of sociopathy where, because it's a next level of sociopathy where you can, you can also see and predict the future and create a future level plan. I found that to be really, really, really terrifying and, and really brilliant. Oh yeah, that's that's horrifying because um, it's selfishness. It, it does, with yeah. Oh yeah, just incredible insight into human psychology and how to manipulate people. And it does, you know, you'd mentioned before, probably when we we're addressing the, that uh, listener question, something about our consumer society. And I think this, I think searching outside of ourselves um, falls in line with this perfectly, and how. We're looking because we because we're a consumer culture and we feel more secure when we have we think we we think we need these all of these consumer products and all this stuff and that will make us feel better. We're always looking outside and I look at something like um, like transcendental meditation and how um, like regardless of the technique and how well it works or it doesn't, you look at how much money it costs to take the class. Uh, that's brilliant, right? Mm-hmm. To to charge that much money is um, a a really powerful point of psychological positioning because you're you're signaling to people this works, this is rare, um, this is worth having, and and maybe that is what you need. Maybe you do need that push to part with that much money or to sacrifice and give devotion over to someone to actually motivate yourself to get what you to get what you feel like you're missing. Uh, but there's essentially, there's like an, a, there's a, this like unspoken agreement between the person that is manipulating and the person that is being manipulated. And there's, there's a real relationship there and it takes two to, to have a victim. It takes two people to make that happen. Yes. Yeah. And, and that is the, that is the scary piece, right? And and that is why I think if you're going to put yourself up on a, on a pedestal, whatever that pedestal may be, right? However you define your guru pedestal, you should be expected to be questioned. Because, because if you're not questioning the people who've put themselves on a pedestal, you, you are inherently going to fall victim to false prophets, right? The, the, everyone is a false prophet in some way, in my opinion, mm-hmm. but, 
but if if you if you are unwilling to question the people who have who have lifted themselves up you are you are the easiest target and you you will become the victim of someone at some point there's no doubt about it well if you know to look at this in like a a business and marketing perspective if you're getting questioned by your followers you're like a cult leader you're getting questioned by your followers it means you screwed up on your on your funnel. It means you didn't. It means you didn't filter out the right people and attract the right people that wouldn't question you at all. Um, but uh, so <laughs> it's like a highly cynical thing. Um, but you know, I really like uh, I really like Alan Watts' take on this whole thing when he talks about the Zen master and how. Um, that you know the student who wants to get the prospective you know follower or student who wants to get into the monastery and wants to learn from the teachings of the zen master he's not allowed inside the temple he shows up at the temple he wants to learn the door is locked and he knocks on the door and they open the door crack and someone says you know the master says we're full go away and the student has to sit outside has to wait out there and suffer for a while he really has to sell himself on the fact that he is in such a sorry state that this is the only solution that he has is to get into the temple and learn from from the Zen master. Um, and, and I think that like a, a truly a truly ethical um, spiritual teacher is is going to do something, and this is going to be rare. They're gonna they're gonna pull back the curtain a little bit and give you some kind of cosmic wink and show you that they actually don't have all the authority and that maybe there's less of a difference between them and you. And maybe that just ingratiates you more to them. Maybe you, you don't believe them, obviously. If they say, ah, I'm no different. There's nothing special about me. Maybe that draws you in even closer. But, but they'll at least have the decency during this relationship of self-deception to tell you, look, I'm nothing special. Mm-hmm. That's so, rare. Alan Alan Watts is an interesting is an interesting example of that, right? Because he, he very yeah. much he very much speaks to the idea, the concept of being being very human and having human flaws and having having the rascal within him. And he also has these like brilliant concepts that that he shares and and some of some of the most memorable kind of idea drops that have landed in my brain have come from, from Alan Watts ideas. And I always am like stuck with the concept that he also drank himself to death, which is beyond to me, like human flaws are one thing. Killing yourself with alcohol is a completely different level of, of despair because it takes repeated destruction of your body and mind continuously in ways that are just so detrimental and and decrepit and horrible that it's hard to imagine such a brilliant mind putting themselves in that place absolutely i mean that it's it's like a it's an awful like filled with awe it's an awful contradiction in a way and and um I remember reading a, a biography about uh, Timothy Leary and and how in his later years he was he was apparently not able to reconcile have any reconciliation with his son 
And you think about how like, oh, okay, you, you learned, you were Harvard, you were like an esteemed Harvard psychologist. Then you had your head cracked open by all of these kind of magic compounds, first with psilocybin and then later with LSD and whatever. And you had all of these spiritual revelations and you hung out with John Lennon and Yoko Ono um, in their bed and like that famous photo shoot in Los Angeles or in New York. And you, you had all of these transcendent profound experiences about the primacy of love and of the now, and you couldn't, your ego is still so large and there was still so much pain there that you're circling the drain. You're on your way out. You're about to drop your meat body and you still can't reconcile with your son. And there's just like a, a real tragedy to, to some of these characters. And you think about how like so many of them, they, they come from trauma. They're born from trauma. I, you know, we mentioned in like a previous episode about Eckhart Tolle about how he was, I think just like depressed and essentially suicidal and then had some kind of breakthrough that was permanent. It was a permanent shift in his brain and how he experiences the world. And now he's just trying to explain it to other people. And, um, and, and something that I don't hear anyone in like any of these gurus say, like Ram Das too. So Ram Das, he was Richard Alpert. He was a graduate student who worked with, with Tim Leary. And then he became a guru after taking like 500 acid trips, right? Mm-hmm. So like, who's willing to do that? That actually doesn't sound fun. That sounds terrible <laughs> um, and terrifying. And so, but he got to this like other permanent state where like he got the message. And as he said, he hung up the telephone at that point. But I've never really heard any of these characters say, uh, it's highly improbable. You're following me. You like what I say, but it's highly improbable. You, you'll get to where I'm at because where I'm at is a permanent shift that only happens to a small slice of the population. And the path to get there is unreliable and it's dangerous. That's very true. We've never, you've, I've never heard anyone say that. Yeah. So that aside, right? Maybe if someone says that they, they have some immediate credibility, what else would make a good guru? I mean, I, you know, get, I think the whole Alan Watts thing of, of being able to tap into that human side and that, that rascal, right. Being able to accept your rascal, but also being able to hold that in check a bit. And so not going down the path of, of like the Charles Manson or taking all the women or whatever you're doing. Yep. Um, I think it probably is that, that honesty and that um, that magnifying of the fine print of the contract, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it's a good website if you go to the website and they put the they don't put the fine print at the bottom in fine print. They put it right in the middle somewhere, a really yeah. big font, saying, "Hey, uh, <laughs> these are these are all the uh, you know the the issues and the." Uh, the warnings and the points of contention. Um, yeah, I don't know what makes a good guru in a, in a sense. I mean, it's, it's hard, but I mean, like wanting that, wanting the followers um, means in some sense that you may have to, you may have like a proclivity to hide and to filter and to omit uh, the parts of you and the parts of your life that aren't very becoming for a guru. Uh, 
or a leader, right? Like we're using this word guru. That's fairly exotic. I think some of us may have contact with these types of people, but it may show up in your life as just um, people that, you know, people that you follow, authors, I don't know, influencers, what a terrible word, whatever it is, is people that you follow. Um, and, and so paying attention to, like you say, the BS meter, like how, how filtered is this? How polished is this? Um, how, how much manipulation is there in this interaction right now? And what is it that is, what is it that is someone trying to extract something from me? That's a good question to ask yourself. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, when I, I think, I think at the like pinnacle of, of my cognitive rating system, I, I would put someone who, who calls themselves a guru, right? And if you call yourself a guru, I'm going to have a zero tolerance policy for, right? If, if you are, if you are boasting to the world that you are an enlightened being, if there's, if there is ever a screw up, then you've lied to me and the contract is broke. So like my, my, my tolerance when I'm scrutinizing someone who has labeled themselves as a guru or is telling me that they're enlightened is zero. You, you have no margin for error. And that to me, if someone, if someone is claiming they're enlightened, there should be no margin for error. That, that should be the scale at which I'm judging you on. Because I, I really... I really believe that enlightenment is a thing that I, I can't conceptualize. I, I, I know nothing about, but I imagine if, if you figured everything out, you're not going to screw up. So, so like, as we work our way down, right. As we get into Instagram influencers, I, I hold them to a, to less of a standard. Oh <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's like, there's a, there's a certain level of hierarchy that works its way down. And I don't know maybe like where Tony Robbins falls on that, on that ladder, but I do know that I'm going to scrutinize anybody offering advice to 10,000 people pretty harshly because it's a, that's a pretty big deal. That's a pretty big deal to think that, you know, you know something that 10,000 people need to know about. You better put your uh, disclaimer somewhere in your pitch, right? But I mean, <laughs> yeah. look, we're all trying, we're all trying to sort through this whole thing. I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, people claiming that they're enlightened or something like that. I mean, that just reminds me of the Tao Te Ching, right? The, um, it's been so long since I've read that. But it's basically, you know, the Tao that can be spoken is not the, the true Tao. Basically, it's like if you say you are enlightened, I mean, okay, never mind then. Next, right? So I think someone who is truly at that level, they might not have a lot to say. They might not have very much to say about anything at all, right? They would just be, um, you know, just experiencing this whole thing in some sort of different way than we do. And maybe they're trying the best they're trying to just alleviate suffering in whatever way they can. Um, and yeah, the, the modern people in the modern age, I mean, yeah, you look at Tony Robbins came from a, a f abusive, you know, mother and no stable father figure and you know, Oprah Winfrey, right? Like terrible traumatic upbringing. Um, and 
Wim Hof, I'd mentioned that before, right? His whole obsession with the cold that came from a birth trauma mm-hmm. and um, that that was like directly tied to him having these like birth, like birth trauma memories of being very cold. Like that's a fascinating thing. And so people are trying to, people are trying to fix themselves and their past traumas in a way and, um, and trying to help other people, but using that as the fulcrum. Um, and so that can be a pretty damn good thing if done right. That's for sure. And yeah, it's, the, yeah, the, the power, the power of that, and the responsibility, uh, especially today, where every so, so like all of the institutions, no one trusts them anymore, and so we're looking for other things to replace them. We're looking for other leaders, and it's getting niched down. So it's like, okay, well, I can't trust what my doctor says because he's he, you know, knows how to prescribe pills but there's a lot of stuff he doesn't know how to do. Like tell me to take this missing element or vitamin or whatever. Instead, he's going to prescribe me a prescription drug. And that happens tragically and frequently a lot. And so because our, our institutions are not as trustworthy as they used to be, and that's, that will get better. That, that gets back to the whole fourth turning thing. That's very characteristic of being in the crisis phase, which we're like smack dab in the middle of right now, or maybe just a little bit past the, the center of it, um, or the halfway point. I mean, we, we do not have faith in any of these three or four letter, you know, acronym institutions. Yeah. And so we're, we're left reaching out to like these smaller uh, groups and leaders to try to get some help, authority, someone to follow someone who has some kind of knowledge to help us throughout our lives. Yeah. And that, that really is what makes us so susceptible things. And, and you can, you see it right there. There are, there are, there are imaginary things. QAnon is based on an imaginary person. And this has popped up in what the last, definitely the last four years, maybe even more recent than that. And there is a giant swath of the American populace that have made this imaginary thing a, 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 a true guru in their life. And there is nothing that could be presented that would, that would make the majority of these people, right? You, you cannot, there is no evidence that could ever come up to, to fictionalize an imaginary guru. And that is a very interesting and unique and not new concept, not new concept, but the, but, but, hmm. You know, I, I wanted to say it's, it's weaponized in a new way, but it's not necessarily weaponized in a new way either, right? There, there's this, this anthropological approach to studying religions. And when, when an anthropologist studies religion, you know, there are, there are thousands, maybe more religions around the world. So you have to create some type of a capsule in which you view the interactions of, of these religious experiences, right? If, if someone goes and, and there's a religious experience that involves rattling bones around and, and alleviating ghosts from a community, you have to then be able to compare that to, to the more modernized and, and Western religions. And how do you do that? Well, the, the, 
the purest definition of religion is the communicated acceptance of the supernatural because you you cannot you cannot tangi- tangibly quantify anything that is supernatural it's beyond it's beyond our natural senses that is inherently what it's about and people have been weaponizing that for as long as people have existed they've there's also a a massively powerful bond that is built into the human DNA when we both agree on something that cannot be proven. So the the tie there, the, the tie and the connection when we both are saying, yes, there is a purple elephant in this room. We both agree on that. Neither you or I can prove that tangibly, but if we agree on it, there's a there's a unique bond that is formed within that relationship that is a part of of human human experience in a way that goes back for as long as we've been able to study humans for sure. Yeah, the the group the group is like a really important and profound piece of this as well. I mean, like group meditation works so much better yeah. than solo meditation, or at least it's easier. It's easier for me and my, my ridiculously noisy brain. Um, and any kind of group experience, like I remember years ago, I had like a Reiki attunement, which was fascinating. I haven't practiced Reiki in a long time. I should probably get back into it. But I remember looking like as the, at the peak of this, at the, at the peak of this experience, it was a very small group of people, but they had these photographs of like the three, I don't know, original Reiki masters or whatever. And just like the images were shimmering in a way, like it was so strange and I cannot explain it. And I think it is just, it gets down to the fact that like I live in the suburbs and I don't have a lot of group experiences like that. And I think that it's a very it's a profound thing when you finally do have something like that, where there's a lot of ritual and intent um, and some kind of group container and format that you're, that you're living through. And so, and we don't, you know, everything is so fragmented now and uh, with, with religion, with belief, with ideology, I, I mean, you don't want to give away. And it, so we are, you know, I'd said this before, like, even though, even though like religion is, is so fragmented and is, is sort of vanishing and being repl- it's being replaced. Like we still have the religious impulse. We still have the impulse to, to follow something. And so um, it, you can see that with Q, as you mentioned, right? Like you, you want to make sure that you don't, and on the opposite end of that as well, like to the left and the right, like everyone is, there's so much um, ideology and, uh, strongly held beliefs, and you can see that it's like there's so much control happening there. Like I try to just not watch the news anymore, but or not watch it, but you know, read articles and stuff. But it's so uh, it's so tempting to do it to get that dopamine hit of self righteousness that I'm on the right side, that I'm on the, in the on the right tribe, and yeah. um, to uh, and so the the act of like of getting off of the gram and giving a damn about your own life and the act of getting away from the news and all of these external feeds and going into something that has a little more primacy, like your own life, your family, 
your own body, your own experience, your own mind without garbage being put into it. Um, that takes a lot of um, discipline and it takes probably a period of withdrawal as well because it is an addiction. Yeah. And But what's on the other side of that, I think, is uh, some inner authority that I think is is lacking. Yeah. Yeah. And that is interesting. It's interesting because the, sometimes it feels really, it feels really easy to just give up authority, right? It's like, I don't want to make any decisions anymore. Here's a guy in a robe and he says he's going to make all these decisions for me. That sounds great. I just, someone just tell me what to do and I'll just yeah. worker be this thing. Hell yeah. And and that that's another piece of there's there's another like component of the of the human psychology that that just doesn't want to have to make all the decisions because it it can be tough. So if you're if if you've found someone that you you think is very insightful, right? How would you suggest approaching that being? Like what, what, what are the protections? What are the safety rails that you could put in and be exposed to someone's ideologies or ideas without becoming part of the ideology? That's a great question. So I don't know. I mean, I'd probably just get, I'd be the first in line to drink the (laughs) Kool-Aid. I'm just kidding. I mean, what, what I tend to do is I tell, I will tend to, if, there's been many times where I feel like I need something. I need to learn something from this person. Mm-hmm. And I take it as instead of like a, a devotion or a giving, giving my agency over, it's more of like, I have identified, I have a mission, I have a goal, whatever it is in my life. I've identified that I need some help with something and I will go all in. I will drink the Kool-Aid on a particular person and their whole reality until I can't have any more until I'm nauseous to drink it anymore. And I, one more sip of their Kool-Aid and I'll barf it up. <laughs> and then I will assimilate in and learn what needs to be learned from that. And then I'll generally drop that and move on to something else and figure out, well, okay, what else is needed at this point? Um, mm. And so I, I guess it's my approach. But yeah, I think not having strongly held beliefs, I think is very important. Once you have... Once you have belief, and it's so easy because it is, it feels so damn good yep. just to have a belief and to not have to think about it and to know that you're on the right side yep. um, is good. And the uncomfortable place is where you can live with a contradiction of having like opposing views and, uh, you know, contr- contradicting viewpoints and not having a strongly held belief about anything and not giving your agency over to one particular, you know, sucker who's trying, who's trying to extract something from you. Um, yeah. So, yeah. so a couple things on that. I, I think, you know, you mentioned the ability to drop it. That's, that is essential. That is, if, if you have picked something up that you are, are, there is nothing that can happen that would allow you to drop it. You, you now have added extra additional weight to your being like whatever that is you've now weighed yourself down with something that that is that is completely unnecessary and that that is just there there you need to have the ability to drop things if if something 
if a new obstacle comes up, right? Like you may want to let go of, of if, if, if there is a, if there's a nuclear disaster in your neighborhood, right? Like you need to have the ability to leave your home because that thing's not going to be viable anymore. And then deciding to stay there is not going to be a viable solution. So like there are times when you may have to drop things, even if they feel really, really important and really safe to you. I think, I think that's really Mm -hmm. important. The other thing you, you close that with this idea of like someone who's trying to extract things from you. And I wonder is, I, I want to ask you, and I, I want to ask you: Is the is there is the line if someone is if someone is taking compensation, monetary compensation, let's say, or energetic compensation, I guess, physical physical exertion from you, is there a level of does does that ruin? Does that taint the guru? If if there is an exchange of finances in any way, is does that taint? The, does that ruin the guru? Is that the line? I guess it depends on if it's a holy man or if it's just a, a guru that you need to learn something from. Okay. Um, I mean, everybody's got to eat, and um, you know, I look at I look at uh, the the tribe. And there, a lot of the people in the tribe are followers and you need followers and only a few people in the tribe want to be leaders and can take that on as a responsibility. And so that translates over today into, into teachers, right? People who want to, to teach, they, they want to lead and they have something, they do have something valuable to share. Um, and so maybe yes, maybe no. I mean, you're far more involved in kind of the, the yoga space that I am. And so, so I'm not sure about it from that perspective. Maybe you've got some good insights there, but um, in some ways, like, you know, you still got to eat. And uh, my favorite line from Ram Das is even God has to take out the trash. Yeah. So, and so even God has to make a buck. Even Ram Das needs to get paid. <laughs> 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 <Yes>. <laughs> So the thing about Ram Dass, the thing that I most remember about Ram Dass, there's two things, I guess. One, he actually was very, very adamant that he was not a guru. Um, He described himself as a window uh, and and a window into the teaching of his lineage that came from Neem Koli Baba, right? Like he, he would describe himself as a window. The other thing that I remember most about Ram Das is the regret he had at the end of his life for not having enough money to take care of. And he felt like he was a burden to his community because he had not saved the financial resources. And he speaks very, very profoundly about this concept of, of the shame and regret that he had at the end of his life that were all tied to the financial component of not being able to take care of himself. And there's like something... There's something both like real and ethereal about that experience that has always haunted me in a way. Um, and, and he's, he's just, he's a, he's a really fascinating guy, but like to, to roll back to this idea of, of money, I used to come from that. I used to come from the place of, you know, if you have this wonderful enlightened teaching, why do I have to pay to, to be exposed to it. And why, like, 
he's, he's certainly not the only one, but it's just a really good example. Um, who's Tony Robbins. There we go. Tony Robbins will mm. charge 10,000 plus dollars to sit in the front mm. row. Right. Yeah. So why is there, why is there like a scale of who, who's better? Why is there a, why is there a hierarchy of who has the most financial resources and how close you can get to touching Tony Robbins? And that used to really offend me. And then I, I realized and it, I didn't realize, I, I read from either Tony Robbins or Sakuru. you know, like the reality is, is the people who are paying more are subsidizing the experience for the people who are paying less. So you can get a $50 rafter seat because somebody paid $10,000 to sit in the front row. And I can a hundred percent appreciate that, right? Like I can see the argument of saying you've made a hierarchy and this is this is capitalism and this is BS, but I can also see the hierarchy in saying, yeah, I value my time at $300,000 for this weekend. I'm Tony Robbins. And in order to get me to go to San Diego for the weekend, you have to pay me $300,000. So we can either charge everybody $3,000 or we can charge a lot of people $15,000 and some people $50 because people have varying amounts of income. And I can, I can see both arguments in that. So I've backed away, like I, I dropped the idea of exchanging financial reward for teachings as being a real problem. The other thing, so, so Sadhguru, which right, right off the bat, when I was introduced to Sadhguru, I was like, I don't care. He calls himself a guru. I, I'm not interested. This is not a thing for me. You, he has 40 minute YouTube videos. I'm not going to watch a 40 minute YouTube video. I'm not going to watch a three hour YouTube video so I can get introduced into who this guy is. And then the more I, the, I, I was brought to a physical experience with him and, and everything he said was going to happen, happened. And then that, that component mm. Uh, where he was able to to predict an experiential thing for me that I was a hundred percent skeptical could happen, ending up happening really changed my perspective on 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 this guy in particular and and teachings really. So Sadhguru, the 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 word sad it, it means uneducated. So there's there's like a playfulness in his name alone. It's like the uneducated guru. I, I I've always really appreciated that. The other thing that he does is his foundation makes millions of dollars. And that number is about to explode in ways that the pandemic for him took what would be a $300,000 weekend and made it into a $15 million weekend because people were willing to do his teachings online because you didn't have another choice. And when you can go worldwide with a, with a $300 program, you can, you, can do a, you can do some pretty big numbers when you have that kind of reach. But the amount of good that I see him putting back into the planet is something that that cannot happen if you're just one guy walking through the woods of India teaching 15 people at a time. So if you trust someone with, with millions of dollars, and there are very few people on the planet that I trust being responsible for millions of dollars, but if you can find someone that you do trust to be the custodian of, of vast sums of money, they can make impacts on because money makes impact on the world. They can make impacts on the world that were not possible without those vast sums of money. So again, 
I understand that like extracting resources from people, financial resources from people throws up a BS red flag, but I, can I continue that path and see, is he just taking that money and building himself a palace? Because if he is, we have a different story than if he's taking that money and he's rebuilding river systems in India. Yeah, that, that's incredible. I'm gonna have to look into look into him. Um, yeah, I mean t- Tony Robbins. He talks about like how many families he's fed. He talks about like the trauma he had as a child when his uh, his father didn't have enough money to um, buy a Thanksgiving, you know, proper Thanksgiving dinner for the family. And this uh, uh, some kind of charity group came around and delivered them a turkey and. And at that point, that was like some inflection point for him where he said, I'm never going to be in this situation. I'm never going to put my family in that situation. Um, and so, so he's trying to do a lot of good with the money that he, he raises. Um, and to, to get to the, the $15,000 seats or the $50,000 seats, there's something actually really necessary about those seats also. And that is that he wants to help, like he's a high-performing person. He wants to help uh, not just everybody. He does want to help everybody. But he also wants to make sure that he's helping the people that are at the top, that are the, that are the highest functioning, most obsessed, productive people on the planet. Yeah. And so you can't get their attention if if someone's worth, you know, fifty million, a hundred million dollars, three hundred million dollars. You can't get their attention and say, "Come to my weekend. I'm going to teach you all this stuff. It's one hundred and fifty bucks, or it's five hundred bucks, or it's a thousand bucks." for the weekend or 10,000 bucks for the weekend. It has to be like, no, I'm going to, it's going to cost you a hundred grand to, to work with me or whatever it is. Right. I think it's, if you want one-on-one coaching with them, I think it's a million minimum now. And the thing is, is that's a necessary, that's a necessary placebo essentially for the people that are working with him that signifies, Hey, I know what the hell I'm talking about because I'm, I'm willing to ask for a million dollars for you to talk to me. (laughs) And so and they don't, and they they'll gladly give that to him if they feel like that's going to help them grow their mission, right? So that's that's a fascinating thing, and uh, you know, with the spiritual gurus, I, I like how Alan Watts talked about how he's an entertainer, right? And sometimes sometimes you'll listen to this stuff, you'll tune into this stuff, not necessarily because you need something from it, but because you're into all of these. spiritual ideas, whatever. And you just like some entertainment that has that particular flavor to it. Yeah. Uh, So it's not always that you're trying to to fill some hole and it's so serious. Sometimes you just want to be entertained in a certain way and it's not, you know, Game of Thrones or whatever the hell. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Yeah. And that is an interesting, you know, not part of the, that's part of the problem in, in a way, right? Is if you if you start opening up this concept to entertainer and and you're not scrutinizing entertainers and and holy men holy people it with with the same level of intensity or you're not scrutinizing them enough you you can build up an entertainer as a holy person right and and yeah. then then you you have a you have a problem if you if you put an entertainer on a on a holy person pedestal, you've created a problem for for yourself. Welcome to America. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. Yes. We do that all the time. We vote we in. Uh, we vote actors yep. into office into the highest office. So yep. 
and, and we, uh, we create yeah. problems for ourselves for sure. So as we, as we, as we come towards the conclusion of this piece, what have we learned about gurus? If you think you need one, you might need one, mm-hmm. but, but be damn careful. Yeah. And the goal of this is to bring it around to, to your own inner authority uh, at some point and to, to center it around what it is that, that you need and, and maybe not take this whole thing so seriously. Um, I think they have a way of playing a game where they try to see through you maybe maybe you should try to turn that around and see what you can observe about them yeah that that might be the thing there right is if someone's telling you that they can what can you what can you see within them and and maybe observe them until you can see what is within them and and that puts you in a pretty good place absolutely yeah we are you know to bring this back to what we talked about before with with addiction, we are trying to fill a hole and uh, it might be okay to just accept that you're maybe never going to fill that completely. And that's part of the human condition. And so don't go chasing after something or someone thinking that that's going to solve all your problems. Yet just, there is, there's nothing externally that's going to fill the hole with you, right? Like you're never going to find that perfect piece, no matter what it is. And no matter how good it feels in the moment you find it, those external solutions are not going to fill those internal holes. Yeah. That's a hard one. That's a hard one because people I think have hope and you've been told through so much messaging on TV and through advertising that like, well, just get this Mercedes, just get this, whatever. Yep. It's going to fill it for you. Just take this course, follow this person. You're going to be complete. And so arriving at that uncomfortable piece of reality that you're probably never going to get there unless maybe you happen to accidentally take 5,000 hits of acid, (laughs) not all at once over the span of the, the generate the summer of love and all that stuff or you're you're Eckhart Tolle you're catastrophically depressed near suicide and you have a breakthrough but for for the vast majority of us you're going to have to live with that sense of incompleteness and well you're in the majority at that point so accept it and welcome yeah absolutely Joel man what what a fun conversation yeah so we'll be back in a couple weeks the 10th or the 20th perfect thank you yeah that was awesome that was a good one it was it was different it was different than i thought it was gonna be what did you think it was gonna be i don't know i don't i thought you i don't know you were gonna be like real gurus are bad i don't know why yeah i don't know i mean maybe my like you know, a 30 year old self would say that, but my 30 year old self would definitely say that. Yeah. 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 You got to zig when everyone else is zagging, right? You gotta, you gotta surprise people a little bit. Well, and it's the same, right? We talked about the ability to drop it, right? Like my 30 year old self was so assured that no one could possibly know these things. And my 40 year old self is like, I don't know. Maybe someone could know these things. Like, I don't know, yeah. these things, but that doesn't mean someone else can't. Yeah. 
I just, yeah, I mean, I can't remember what, so I was listening to some audiobook and same thing as these other people where it's like, this dude had some experience and something switched in his brain permanently. It's like, well, why are you even talking to me then? Like, fine. Okay. Like, I guess, I guess you could like share the landscape and what that's like, but if anyone's listening to that, hoping that they can replicate that permanently in their life, I mean, cool. It's not going to happen probably. So... There's that oh, one thing I forgot to mention. There's the uh, there's a TED talk called um, and or a book called My Stroke of Insight. Um, it's about this woman. I had a note here. I can't remember who. Someone bolts maybe. She had a stroke, and it um, turned off parts of her brain and amplified other parts of her brain, so that when she was in this state and she was essentially wounded, she was fully enlightened, like just lights out, eyes closed, just like blissful experience. And then she comes back from it and is telling everyone about this and like look pain. And she's like a neuroscientist too. I think it, I think that was the story. So she understood what was happening uh, at least after the fact. But it's yeah. like, well, maybe you don't actually want to get there. I don't know if you can garden or take out the trash very yeah. easily if you're just like so high on life all yeah. the time, you know? Yeah. Like Timothy Timothy Leary, he he like had. He was living in this mansion in upstate New York, in Millbrook, New York, with all these hippies, and they're taking acid all the time. And there's just there's just dog shit on the floor, like in the mansion. <laughs> and and then they would just quip and just and the people who complained, they're like, "Look, you just have to deal with the dog shit of life on the floor." And it was just like, "You people are like like out playing cosmic games, and you have dog shit on the floor. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's so like it doesn't quite." <laughs> it's not a long-term solution. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is the bonus. You're still recording. This is the bonus. There bonus. you go. Bonus. Keep section. it for later. Keep it for later. Yeah. Bonus. Cut it all up. Save it for later. Ah. All right, man. Well, thank you. Thank you, man. Yeah. We'll uh, we'll touch base soon on the next one. Yeah. Sounds good. Whatever that's gonna be. Don't know. I'll, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll give that some thought. And maybe, uh, yeah, maybe we'll we'll message this weekend and figure something out. Perfect. Cool. Thanks, man. All right. See you.